0: So unlike the previous films, which I, asterisk, have never seen before, I've really never seen Brave before, so this is a first-time outing for me. Which, hmm. So, God, where do I begin? Brenda Chapman uh, was the director of this film and primary story writer, uh, asterisk. And she's been working with Disney since Little Mermaid, this is also probably the most there's no probably this is the most Disney Pixar film we've had so far. I don't know if that trend will continue but I mean for God's sake it's a fairy tale centered on a specific cultural group which involves a young person in their teenage late teenage years being forced to undergo a thing thanks to their parents or their station or their society which they themselves are pushing against and I mean you you see all the hallmarks here right? For God's sakes, just just swap her out for Jasmine and you can see the comparison between the two. Not not being dismissive, it's worth noting. Just, it's pretty blatant how much influence was put upon this one. Now, that makes sense, since again, Miss Chapman herself was a Disney person, not a Pixar person, so I'm with that. And she does a good job with it. In fact, I would actually say this does some of those particular story beats better than Aladdin. Oh, Aladdin's a great film. Don't mistake me. But as far as if you compare the character of Jasmine from Aladdin with the character of Merida from this, no contest, my opinion. That being said, there were, there's no nice way to put this. There were issues with Mister Lassiter. Yeah, him. One of these days, I'm going to stop talking about him. I'm not sure when. I didn't. I, I kind of thought I was already done. I thought we'd already reached the point where Lassiter had effectively left the stage for Pixar, and I wasn't going to be bringing him up anymore. But here we are. He uh, was John Lasseter uh, with re- with regards to her, and so that caused some issues. We can only infer specifics because they have never been talked about. Either way, she ended up leaving the project and then leaving the company. She briefly went over to DreamWorks and then finally went on to form her own thing, uh, Chapman Lima Productions, along with her husband, so, that's unpleasant and horrible. Now, how much was the work changed from her original idea? Well, that's a good question, because according to her, most of the major beats are still there. And, I don't know, I kind of feel that way based on the overall tone of the flick. So, kind of with that. The person to replace her, uh, Mark Andrews, he was a second unit guy. Uh, I've talked about that before. Now, no dismissalness. Second unit directors and second unit creative leads are extremely important and are very valuable to filmmaking. It's one of the reasons I praise George Lucas, because George Lucas is an excellent second unit di- director, and, and he is. He has a great eye for sweeping camera shots or establishing shots or army shots or just all kinds of stuff. He's really good with the camera in that manner. So, good stuff. I don't know if Mr. Andrews is good at any of this, because really the problem is I have no idea how much of his influence is in this film and how much isn't. This is his only real directorial debut, and his only real story credit, and I'm pretty sure both of those have massive asterisks attached to them. So I'm just going to go ahead and call this Chapman's film, if that's okay with you all. Um, There was a lot of changes that happened in pre-production, and I mean a lot so much so that the story has undergone multiple major revisions. Now, that's nothing new. Every Pixar film we've covered so far has had that problem, going all the way back to Toy Story 1, which, remember, Woody was originally the villain in that one, just to show how severe this kind of thing is. But in this case, the only reason I'm even bringing it up is because I don't know how many changes were what, where, why, and how. So this is kind of a big morass of, Oh, Now, it is worth noting that Disney was full tilt at this point. I, you, you probably noticed I mentioned something about the year. I actually think I screwed up my dates a little bit, but it's worth noting that we don't know the exact timeline. Let me lay this out for you. Back in, uh, 09, Disney had purchased Marvel, which was a bit of a sea change for cinema in several ways and started the, the, the at the time new and uh, at the moment we're arguably still kind of in the middle of You know, slash leaving the era of films that was created by that purchase. Everyone, of course, calls it the MCU era, and that's totally valid. But this very style of films that have been made in this era are of the MCU style. There's a reason why not only the big, bombastic, you know, expensive, expansive AAA style movies have been a big thing, the Jurassic Worlds and the Transformers are good examples of this. But also, we've had a lot of focus more on continuity across movies, since that has been a proven formula, and just about everything is an example of that. I mean, even the Godzilla series has that, right? I know the old Godzilla films had that, too. I am enough of a film geek to know that. You get my point. So, (sighs) why is that relevant for this film? If you paid attention during my MCU ruminations, which actually stretched across three years uh, in real time, as well as in uh, terms of how, how they released the uh, disney was kind of okay with them doing whatever with severe limitations until a certain point in history uh, there was something called the marvel creative committee which was event which was something that disney fully backed and supported up until several things happened now a lot of things happened to get that shut down and in my opinion it was a good move shutting that down i stand by that statement that is only my opinion though but the point is Disney started giving creative freedom to the company they bought to make the good products. That's the key point right there. That's the thing that Disney did right. And for the many, many horrific, awful, terrible things Disney has done over the century at this point, I will give them credit in that regularly they have a habit of funding the studios and letting them run. Why is this relevant to Pixar? Well, they haven't. It can be debated whether or not they were doing that prior to now. But they are without question doing that as of this point. Now, this was a little bit after that, obviously, but Brave had been in construction for some time. And so Brave was in development when this type of mentality was going through. It is worth noting that I don't know with total certainty if Disney had officially taken this policy with Pixar at this point or not. I know they did with a couple of future films. It is my theory that this was the first film produced under this new mentality. Not hundred percent sure on that one. Um, so, with the you know, with the, with the reins off, we have Brave. Now, uh, it is worth noting that this film cost one hundred eighty five million, a little bit less than the last one, and made five hundred forty million, a little bit more than the last one. So that's good and helps prove the significance and the capability of it. Um, that being said, that is especially impressive in my book. Why? Because this film came out just two months after Avengers. Now, I don't want to talk about the MCU yet again, but Avengers was a box office crush. It absolutely destroyed the box office in ways that was literally record-breaking in multiple separate methods. The fact that this was able to do that well when Avengers was still selling tickets is actually reasonably impressive. And I think it deserves it. It is a surprisingly good film. In a similar... It reminds me of WALL-E, if I had to compare it to another Pixar film. Because WALL-E is actually an extremely simple film. Not not in a bad way. Just... just, Its plot is extremely bare bones. And its overall approach is almost minimalistic on purpose. I don't know why I said almost. It is minimalistic on purpose. But they do a lot with what they have. Simple does not mean bad, something I feel like I have to reiterate every now and again because some people still don't seem to have gotten the memo on that point. This film is actually quite simple. Does that make it bad? No. And there are wonderful little tidbits of depth here and there that that flesh it out. I suppose we should go ahead and start talking about the film itself. Can I just go ahead and absolutely gush about the visuals, by the way? No, really. Now... I had the, the great fortune of being able to watch this film in 4K, which I am rather grateful for because it looks absolutely amazing. Actually, it, I suppose I should give away the fact that I have procured a new 4K monitor. Now, it was actually for show purposes. I didn't get it to watch things in 4K. Having the extra real estate is extremely useful to me when streaming. But while I was here, since it showed up in the middle of this whole, you know, this Pixar block that I'm currently working through, I decided, screw it, let's go ahead and watch these in 4K. And I actually got to watch the previous film and this one with the new monitor, and it it is stunning. They really do a great job with making the, the Scottish terrain look absolutely gorgeous. And I wanted to give special praise to that, because their terrain modeling and their terrain design has been getting better with every film. It's not like it's ever really been exactly bad. But there are shots here that you could just have footage of it, and I would probably just watch that for a while because, wow. You'll also notice the humans. Now, the Pixar approach to humans had always been, we want them to look realistic, but we can't, so here's what we do. It wasn't until Incredibles where someone behind the scenes was like, why don't we just stylize them? We stylize everything else. And thus, when Incredibles was being made, they stylized them, right? Now, if you pay attention, going forwards, the humans in each of these films, henceforth, are either very stylized, like in this film, or approaching realistic looking. And what I find most interesting is that which one they go for depends on what they want from the specific film. In this case, the heavy stylized thing suits the fairy tale nature of it. And since humans are the overwhelming majority of characters in it, having that kind of visual variety to the different characters, I mean, literally, the, the, the massively different body types that they have, helps add to the visual variety... And thus we have more interesting things to look at. Contrast, say, Inside Out. I'll talk about this more when we get there, but in Inside Out, they have this extremely fantastical, incredibly inhuman-looking thing that most of the story focuses on, so when they switch to the people, they wanted them to look as normal as possible. They're not photorealistic, of course, but they're not stylized, not in the same way as they are here, or in The Incredibles. So you see how they're using this as part of yet another tool in their arsenal, and once again, it boils down to the actual art and animation departments. Whew. I, uh... <laughs> I... Miss Chapman says that she based several bits of this film off of her interactions with her daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody out there ever raise a kid or take care of a kid? Yeah. Uh this is when I had my notes about how she is a straight up Disney princess. Um there's also this is also a musical that's another way this is a, a clear Disney influence, is because they got the musical thing going on, you know, like Frozen would later do. Um just a year after this, I believe. So Fergus is the great warrior, fighter, charger. <laughs> He's not an idiot though. That's actually an important point and it's something the film does well. Too often they will try to distinguish character traits by exaggerating them to the point of cartoonishness. Fergus is not stupid. He just doesn't really have a mind for certain type of things. His int and his charisma... Yeah, I'll stick with that. ...are relatively low. And so he can't do the politics, and... I mean, the dinner table is a perfect showcasing of this. He's over there eating this giant plate of meat and talking about his great exploits. She's reading through the, the, the paperwork and actually managing the kingdom. By the way, there are differing accounts on this because that's how history works, but there are multiple accounts that that was kind of actually how the deal worked back in the day. The king would be out there and be the face, and they'd be the name, and they'd be the, the warrior, and they'd go out into battle. The queen would actually run the country. This was especially true in England which obviously includes Scotland, has the, you know, the British Isles, the British Isles. So, truth in television? Eh, you decide. Again, this is a disputed fact, as most facts when it comes to history are. Now, um, she, of course, is... Well, it's, I call her the thinker, but that's not quite accurate. It's more like her thoughts just lend in a different direction. She is far better at int and charisma, You'll notice her whiz score is low, whereas his whiz score is pretty high. He's pretty good at paying attention and picking up on things, both literally, he smells the bear, and is a tracker, and figuratively, he's the one who recognizes what's going on with the daughter and notices that there's something wrong and tries to work this out. Whereas the mother is just kind of blind to all that stuff. You see how they kind of pair up rather nicely? It is is a good pairing, and both are shown to be good parents. Important point. So rarely does fiction portray both parents as good parents. Usually there's the one cool parent and the one obstinate parent. And while you can see it's kind of that way here, it really isn't. There's even an extremely important scene. Skipping ahead just a little bit here. There is an extremely important scene where they're yelling and ranting and... And, and the mother grabs the bow and throws it into the fire. And then, you know... Uh, Merida runs out, and Eleanor's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, and immediately tries to get the bow right back out of the fire. Showing that regret is important. (sighs) I I, I don't know what else to add to that. Again, anybody out there who's ever been a parent, yeah. So let's rewind a little bit here. The biggest metaphor, uh, visual metaphor here, is the hair. I want you to look at Eleanor's hair. It's long and kind of a, a light milky brown, and it's really straight and very well-kept. And then we cut to Fergus, who just has this mat of red on top of his head. And then look at Merida. Yeah, that tracks. Uh, that tracks. She really is her father's daughter in just about every way. And this is shown throughout the course of the work. She is far more the whiz, uh, you know, dexterity, strength kind of person and constitution uh, than she is the int and the charisma person. While she is, again, not really stupid, she's probably the closest thing this film has to stupid. There's multiple times where she just is not figuring out what's going on and does not have a proper understanding of the situation and, as a result, bumbles her way through it. But she is still cunning. She is still capable and she is still, you know, working her way through this because obviously she wants to and obviously she cares just like her dad. Again, there's a brilliant scene earlier where the dad sits the mother down as I like, talk to me as if you're talking to her. And then he does a bit of a comedic thing. And then we get right back to the serious character stuff. What follows is the mother finally opens up to the father. And the daughter finally opens up to the horse. Both of them just want the other to listen. Neither of them is actually talking to each other. Again, simple, but very well executed. This is, again, 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 again. I hate to keep comparing this to Cars 2. I guess I haven't said that yet. In my mind, I was constantly comparing this film to Cars 2. Because it just zigs in every way that Cars 2 zagged. In this film, we don't actually have one central pillar unless you count themes, in this, case, which is actually true. Most films have themes as central pillars and instead of, you know, Neelix being a bad cook. So, <laughs> hey, guys, maters! Anyways, <clears throat> I expected to see at least a couple of completion of that sentences in the comments. At least one. Just, just come on, make my day. In here, the pillars rotate around several characters. Or rather, the characters rotate around the pillars. Might be a better way to visualize that. The connections between people and the the arguments and the fights we have. Well, what's funny is they even show this by contrast. I I don't know why I'm jumping into this so early on, but I tend to follow a little bit of flow of thought with these ruminations, so let's just jump right into it, shall we? One of the central themes is the obvious one. Family. But I, I say that word. Everyone means something different when they say the word, so let me try to clarify that. What I mean here, we love each other, we care about each other, Obviously. We don't agree with each other. We're not sure how to deal with each other. We're so emotionally invested in each other that we take every little thing magnified, good and bad. Now on the good, that's great because it, it just makes your day to be with them, right? To hang out with your mum, or to be with your sis or to take care of your daughter or whatever, right? But on the other hand, the negative gets magnified in just the same way for the exact same reason. This is one of the reasons why people who are close to each other tend to fight so much. Specifically because they are close to each other. This is just human psychology at this point, right? Fighting that and dealing with that is, well, something that's on an individual basis. But you'll notice that the key instrument, the solution to this whole problem, was right there at the very beginning. Listen. Proper communication. Hey, that sounds familiar. Now... The other theme, though, and this is kind of important as well, is the idea of how exactly we. Let me let me step back a little bit. Let me let me build up to that point a little bit. Um, Fergus is terrible at politics because, of course, he is. They decide they're going to go ahead and do this thing and if, uh, archery, archery. That's my choice. Okay, very Robin Hood. <laughs> Love it. What's funny is Robin Hood could work for a female name just as well as it could a male names. That actually fits pretty neatly. Uh I do love how they show the, the distinction between the three tribes and how they're all kind of pathetic and terrible in their own ways. <clears throat> but what I love most of all is the festival. This is actually the Bugs Life scene. It's just not... You know, it it, ha- it follows the same beats. Okay, we're having a festival with Scottish people. Have fun with it, and so we see caber tossing, and we see hammer throw, and we see the shot put, and that that fo- I, I don't know what it's called. I actually tried to look it up, and I couldn't find it. It's it's a variant on golf or rugby or something like that that they do. I've seen people play it. As I just couldn't find the name of it. And they're just going and having fun, and it's cool and it's awesome. And they just have this section where the animation team just gets to stretch for a little bit. It's just. It's humans doing human things rather than bugs doing human things, or cars doing human things, or you get the point. So uh, this gets to the actual fight where she pulls a Robin Hood. Fight with the mother. Everything's upsetting. <laughs> we say a lot of things we don't mean when we're angry, and both of them do that here. And what's, it's actually appropriate because both of them just end up kind of fleeing from each other in their own ways. You, I hate to keep comparing this to Cars too. You notice how they have bothered to do a lot of establishment here. They have bothered to try and set the scene and set the stakes and set the characters and figure out the dynamics between the characters so we understand what's going on and why. I also want to mention something. There was a certain point in the film where I uh, accidentally hit a thing, and it pulled up the timeline, you know, at the bottom of the screen. And I'm like, wait, there's only 20 minutes left? It was pretty much exactly what went my, through my mind. This film, uh, Pixar films in general tend to have good pacing. I commented as we go. This film might have the smoothest pacing I've ever seen. Events just naturally and smoothly go right into each other. And it very naturally follows what I call the typical pacing flow. Highs, lows, highs, lows. And it raced through the events so quickly that I didn't notice that it had been an hour and a half. (laughs) Which is pretty impressive. Once again, credit, Ms. Chapman. Um... So we've established everything. We have good pacing. We have the rela- relatability. This is the other big one I wanted to talk about. It's often said that Pixar films are made for kids and adults. I'm not sure there's ever been one that is more that than this. How many of you saw or have seen this film, you know, recently or in the past as a child? Now, now I got to clarify that. When well, I don't mean like you're five or six, I mean as someone who is younger. And is still at the point where you're living with your parent or your parents. Obviously, I I am not in that list. I didn't see this film until quite today, quite a bit later, as I was about to say. And I realized, I guess I should just give it away today, because like I said, it's the first time I've seen this one. Um, So that brings me to my second question. How many of you have seen this film as a parent or, or as an ag caretaker or an uncle or as an adult? And you get where I'm going with this the scenes are perfectly constructed so that the perspective of both sides is fully visible and fleshed out as much as you can do in a in a 90-minute film and or however long this film is and they do try to showcase both sides as being equally relatable and understandable so that just about everyone in the audience could probably go yeah now that doesn't apply universally but this is that second theme. I know that sounds like a strange thing, strange time to bring it up, but the second theme is exactly that relatability, or perhaps more accurately, the understanding. I'm gonna jump around here a little bit. Although, pro tip, if you ever see wisps in the wood, don't follow the wisps. They worked out in this film because apparently the wisps in this are actually the dead who have passed on, as we see with Mordu, but don't follow wisps. You'll you'll just end up down by a cave and killed by trolls points if you get the reference the the hmm. fergus understands his daughter and his daughter understands him but the mother and the daughter have so much less understanding even though the care is still there as usual you can see how this theme is tied into the first one both of them want to to reach out to and interact with the other both of them want to be closer but they actually legitimately do not understand each other's perspectives. They're, they're speaking Greek to each other, right? And it's just, why? Huh? Um, there's several examples of this throughout the course of this film, but the two biggest ones are the three tribes and Mordu. Uh, the three tribes actually do understand each other quite well. They do have a good camaraderie. They tend to forget it for their own reasons. It, is, it only requires a relatively minor reminder to be like, you know, we uh, <laughs> we, we, we don't need to be at war. Man, if only that worked in real life history, right? You remember when we were allies? Let's keep being allies. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It'd be nice if it did, though, because it's actually a valid point. We benefit more together than we do against That's a historical fact, as far as I'm concerned. I will be willing to acknowledge that it's not something we can consider a universal fact, but at least amongst this species, I think I can safely say, yeah, no, that tends to be true. And that that connection, that alliance, tends to sit entirely on the basis of understanding. Putting things in proper context, like, say, the fact that your wife's a bear. Or the fact that, well... Mordu wanted the strength of ten men, and he wanted to rule by himself. He didn't even try to understand. It's obvious, based on connotations and the fact that he you know, bowed his head in respect when he was killed, that Mordu has not exactly been enjoying his experience, and that he probably regrets it. And it's almost assuredly, in my opinion, tied into that same th- the same two central themes the fact that he wasn't willing to be a part of the family of the other three brothers, and instead ended up actually killing them, and the fact that he at no point tried to understand them, and, well, this is pure speculation, but it's entirely possible they never tried to understand him, either. What I'm trying to say is that I could see Merida very easily becoming Mordu. It would take more years and more time and more hardship. But she was already on that path, and that path is entirely plated with with giant bricks, each one of which is labeled misunderstanding, or ignorance if you prefer. But I, I prefer misunderstanding, because it really is about not getting it, and not connecting. And, well, Merida's a warrior princess, Xena reference here. I, I mean this, though, she is the kind of person who would be a warrior queen, that's a dangerous thing to have with that kind of mentality. And by the way, what was Mordu? There's a, I'm going to race through a few scenes here because I've hit the major points I wanted to hit. Um, magic is added to the scene. Do you, do you think the magic was a good thing or a bad thing to be added to this film? I know, that sounds like a weird question. But it doesn't show up until a little over halfway through the film. Like I said, excellent pacing. And its its only real purpose is the bear thing, and then it goes away. Now, obviously, the bear thing's kind of critical. You'd have to massively rewrite the film. But I was really invested in getting into it even before the magic showed up. That's kind of why I ask that, your take on that. What's with the bear motif with the witch? If this was another setting, I would say that she had actually was in the middle of a contract with or was the Loa of Bears, and that would actually explain why she has such a bear thing going on. There's a nice little tidbit where Eleanor turns into a bear, and she sees her shadow on the wall, freaks out, thinks there's a bear, rushes to the wall, but as she's rushing to the wall, in fear and terror, her arm goes right over her daughter. Nice touch there. I like those little kind of touches, especially when it comes to animation um, or directing, you know, because what's her very, very first instinct to protect her daughter? What's funny is her dad does this, too. I'll, I'll cover that in just a second. Um, so this leads to the R2-D2 dialogue. I, I almost feel bad for the actress, but at the same time, I guess her throat didn't hurt as badly because, you know, she had to say far fewer lines than everyone else. They do try to communicate pretty well, and they actually do a pretty good job of it, as is normal. You'll also notice they do, as usual, excellent job on the animation. In fact, there are two, I want to say, animation sets for uh, Eleanor as a bear. One is Eleanor. The other is a bear. And just like with Wally, where it was immediately distinguishable just by how he was moving, which one we were looking at at any given point in time, same thing here. Even without the eyes, which is the obvious showcasing, or... The fact that Eleanor isn't acting like Eleanor, even just from the way Eleanor moves, it is immediate and obviously apparent when she's a bear and when she's a person. Love the distinction, and also important, because if Eleanor just moved like a bear, then that that distinction wouldn't be there and we wouldn't have that automatic visual contrast to showcase the two. We then have some antics. I'm willing to forgive the antics here because, you know, she's in a giant body that is lumbering and, raw, and she's used to being this, this, you know, tiny, petite, precise thing with different movements. She's used to walking around in a corset, for God's sake. So, yeah, she's probably not uh, particularly used to all of this. This is a good time as any to mention that I don't like the kids in this film. The three boys that actually have no lines of dialogue. They're rambunctious and they help a couple of times, but, Honestly, they remind me a whole lot of Jar Jar. You just remove Jar Jar's dialogue and you kind of got a similar thing. They play pranks on people. Isn't that funny? Okay. Moving on. I'm going to get so much hate for that comment. I can just tell. This then leads to them dragging her back to the thing. She, uh, I love how blasé that, uh, uh, Merida is throughout this whole thing. Sorry. Trying to get all the names straight. You know me and names. I love the vials thing. If you are this person, put it in the first vial. If you're this person, put it in the second vial. That one scene is the closest thing to the bugs life scene in in the entire film, and that was actually pretty good. So, um, looking at my thoughts here, this is when I was going to directly compare this film to Cars two. Kind of already did that. It is really whiplashy, by the way, to go from Toy Story three, what I consider to be one of the best to Cars 2, which I consider to be the worst so far, to this, which is definitely in the upper echelons for me. I did like this film quite a bit. It's just I don't have quite as much to say about it as in some cases, so hopefully I'll come up with at least enough stuff to to yammer on that you'll enjoy this particular video, this video essay. Um, So, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking at my notes. This is where I, I talk about all the stuff I've already said, the int and the charisma checks, the shot it <laughs> again. She is her father's daughter, uh, and 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 they're going to go to war over a marriage. Oh, come on, no one would ever go to war over a marriage between nobility. That's uh... the first time this is funny to me. This ties into what I consider to be the second theme. And helps with the first thing. But this is probably the biggest moment for the second theme. The understanding theme. The one scene, the first scene I should say, where she really actually listens to her mother is when her mother can't talk and is playing charades. Maybe it's because she has to put the actual effort into it to try. But it's also possible that she does so because she wants to. That is what understanding tends to be predicated by, after all the desire to understand, it doesn't simply blossom on its own right, after all. And in many cases, we simply can't reach an understanding. There are simply too many things and too many disparate concepts when it comes to you know, sentience and sapience that the idea of understanding everything is just not on the table. But she does try. And she does listen. And I hope you're paying attention because her mother understands her back. While her mother is listening to her, Taking, the ch- taking charge and talking about it and talking them through it, you notice that her daughter actually manages a successful charisma check. It's a small thing, but it kind of shows how she is the daughter of both parents. And while she is obviously the warrior queen, she is capable of navigating political waters as well, and personal ones. And her idea is valid. Now, it has to be couched in the queen thinks, because she doesn't have the political capital yet, but the statement stands firm. It is then the queen's turn to understand her daughter and say, no, 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 no. Let's break with tradition. Let's do this a different way. And that probably wouldn't have worked, truth be told, had not the other kids, the other firstborns, immediately jumped on the idea as well. Because, I mean, that's logical, isn't it? None of them really want to do this. They're doing this because of the political positioning of their parents. Sound familiar? So they're like, okay. Why don't we go open the best beers down (laughs) in the thing? Smart thinking. Get the little, get the little glasses. Get the little glasses. Okay. So political issue is contained. Now let's deal with the personal issue. So they go up, they find the thing, and this leads to the final conflict. Because Fergus goes to the room, and what does he find? He goes to Eleanor's room. He's happy. He's enthused, his daughter's not only shown him proud, he is going to Eleanor's room to gush to her because he thinks Eleanor is going to be just as proud as he is, in a different way. He recognizes that she has done something that he can't do, but that Eleanor would, and wants to share that pride with her. It's interesting how Fergus is portrayed as a fairly decent husband, in addition to being a decent father, which I only feel the need to comment on because of how damned rare it is in fiction. It's just, It's weird. But here we are. So, he goes ahead and goes in and he finds a room completely smashed and with no Eleanor. In fact, it's been smashed by a bear. Yeah. He then immediately runs to his daughter's side. Now, asterisk. I know that Fergus is the bear king. I know that he kills bears regularly. I get that. It still says something that a human being would rush to attack a full-grown bear, without hesitation, just to defend his daughter. That, yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you that one, Phil. I'll give you that one. And uh, this leads, like I said, to the final conflict. Eleanor's trying to run. Uh, is trying to mend the cloak. Hopefully that will fix it. They never really say what specifically undoes the curse. And they get to the, you know, there's this big chase, and they have to get out, and boobs are involved. Don't ask. And they finally manage to get out there. (laughs) This is the first time, by the way, if you're paying attention, that Fergus doesn't listen to his daughter. Something he's been doing consistently throughout the film. It makes sense, though. I'm not going to blame him. After all, he is afraid. He doesn't listen to his daughter out of fear. And she's also saying something absolutely insane. Earlier in the film, you know, it was shown that he didn't even believe magic existed and well, as we see, it kind of doesn't. It's a rare thing, so you can kind of see the point here. But um well, obviously the witch is uh Boo from Monsters Inc. It's very obvious as as anybody would tell you. Sorry. Sorry, I had to get that out there. Final conflict. You notice there's no villain. You caught that, right? Now, I didn't know that walking in. I, I actually had no idea who the main characters were or villains. Were. Again, I I was very unfamiliar with this work. I knew a bear was involved. and A redhead, and that's about as far as I know. Doesn't really narrow it down much. Mordu could be argued to be the villain, but I would argue very strongly against that. Because Mordu is clearly the villain of another story that happened 700 years ago, or however long ago it is. That was his story, and he was the villain of that story... And ever since then, ever since he lost, because that's what happened there, he has been a victim of his own pride and of his own lack of understanding. There's a reason why he is grateful when he dies. Thus, this actually forms, this actually does serve as a pretty good fairy tale because it follows what I like to call the Greek tragedy method. There's no distinctive villain, there's only the tragedy itself. Fergus nearly kills his wife twice. Think about it. Naturally, she defends her. I will not let you kill my mother. And she says it so clearly. And that's, it, the second time when she says that is when he starts to really actually listen to it. Thankfully, Mordeaux, Mordu shows up so they can actually have an actual bear fight. And then <laughs> then Eleanor breaks out of the, the hold she's being held in, which has held her completely captive. Because, well, there's a reason we call it Mama Bear. So she goes after Mordu, and we have that massive fight from hell. And yeah. Okay, you got me there, film. This is this is when the feels started to show up. Oh, this is this would be the it's it's kind of low tier, I'm not gonna lie about it. But I was still misting up here, and I'll admit it freely. This was the Pixar Tears moment for me was her going to bat against this monster inhuman bear. Which is stronger and durable and has lasted for however many centuries since the last time. Because he's just that much of a death machine. And she still goes to toe, toe-to-toe with him. And effectively is losing consistently. If she hadn't outsmarted him, she would have lost. But she still does it. Because... Daughter. So, you know. brace, Mommy, come back to me. She comes back. She's nude. It's hot. I guess. And then the kids are nude. That's a lot less hot. <laughs> That's terrifying. Is it just me or does this film feel the most dreamworks of the Pixar films so far? And I admittedly don't mean that as a good thing. Like with the boobs gag earlier. It's just, whatever, whatever. Letting it go. Letting it go. So then they're all happy. They all sail off. The kids are still being Jar Jar. We have a closing narration. The end. On paper, I probably shouldn't like this film. It has several elements that I don't enjoy, including miscommunication, lack of understanding, narration, and musical numbers. And yet, for some reason, it works really well. Maybe it's down to the presentation, or maybe it's down to the core subject matter. I would actually say that there is some good meat on the bones of this story, which is probably an excellent reason why this one was so enjoyed by me. I am, as ever and always, curious of your thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed mine, and I will see you next time.